Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. And I'm Justin. Thank you so much for tuning in. If this is your first time listening to us, thank you and welcome. If you like what you hear, then please hit the subscribe button, leave us a review and rating on whatever platform you are listening on. Also, if you want to donate to this channel, there's a link in the description of the episode that will take you to the corresponding page. A small monthly donation equal to a convenience store snack will help us to up our production value as well as allow us to do some new spinoffs on the channel. And don't forget to check out our Facebook page where we interact with all of you and talk about other things going on in the music world. Now that that's out of the way, let's get into the real stuff. As always, Lucas, you have some very interesting statistics for us about our podcast. What's going on? So we have passed 8,000 listens already. Again, we're we're kind of on a pace now where we're getting nearly 1,000 listens every week. Wow. Which is staggering to think about. I mean, like, that's a pretty big benchmark for podcasts. Yeah. And... Our episodes are having really strong first weeks. The Who, Slayer, Journey, they've all had great first weeks. And we're starting to pick up more regular listeners, which is really great. And yeah, it's just really cool to see all these numbers continue to go up. We've got Coldplay that's already at 2,300. (laughs) And our Beatles episode is finally on the cusp of breaking 100. (laughs) (laughs) Which is so sad because... As we have said many times, the Beatles is where all of this starts. Yeah, I mean, like, that's the band that started it all. They're the influencers of every band on this list. Every single list. And they're by and far our most under-listened episode. You've told me before, like, Pink Floyd has kind of been on the rise. Mm -hmm. Who knows? Maybe there'll be a renaissance with the Beatles. Speaking of that... Pink Floyd and Metallica still continue to be, like, within five listens of each other at all times. Wow. Um, right now, Pink Floyd just jumped ahead, but they're only it only has three more listens than Metallica's does, which is, that's been really fun to kind of see that. Uh, a couple other benchmarks, um, our Iron Maiden episode is past 200, uh, so has Fleetwood Mac and ACDC, and uh, Slipknot's getting close to the 500 mark. Strange. I thought that would actually be higher. Yeah, it's it's kind of slowed down, but still, it's getting a lot of plays. The next one that's going to cross 1,000 is going to be Nirvana. That's over 700 now. Well, that is understandable. Oh, yeah. As always, there's something interesting happening in the music world, and of course, this week is of no exception. Lucas, what is going on? Well, we've been in the... Um the age of the revivals and the reunions. Correct. And we have... One of the biggest reunions of the year, but at the same time, one that I saw coming a mile away. And who is that? And that's Motley Crue. Motley Crue. So. Yes. Back in 2014, they very famously made a a cessation of touring contract. Now, what is that? That means that once they signed it, that they were going to do their farewell tour and that under... Well, I guess on what seemed like legal recourse that they were banned from ever touring again under the Motley Crue name. Okay. And um, they we've now kind of figured out that the main reason they were doing that is so that individual members couldn't like go out as Motley Crue and it be like, oh, this is Tommy Lee's Motley Crue. Oh, I see. Or this is Nikki Sixx's because that's kind of a popular thing right now. I was thinking that meant that somebody owned like – an agency or whatever own the name Motley Crue. No, it just under the contract it said that they cannot tour. Gotcha. 
um, that they could still get together. They could still do one-off shows if they wanted. They could still make new music. They just couldn't tour. Um, and that farewell tour ended on New Year's Eve in 2015. And so that was the last Motley Crue concert. And um, it's been quiet up to this point. I mean, really the main reason they're coming out of retirement is because The Dirt did so well, which was their biopic that came out on Netflix. Which, by the way, if you have not seen yet, it is very good. Yes, it, I quite enjoyed it. It's a little raunchy, but it actually gets better as as it progresses. So we would encourage you guys to watch it. And just a lot of great stories, a lot of crazy things. That's true. And uh, they really saw their sales skyrocket after that uh, movie came out. And so, honestly, it's just kind of almost like the offer was too good to be true. And also, before they made that movie, the band members had, like, not spoken to each other. Yeah. And they were able to reune and come back together whenever they were making it. And they said that they just kind of rediscovered their brotherhood. And that they wanted to continue to hang out with each other. And so now we've got a, uh, a huge tour with Poison and Def Leppard. So it's a three-headliner tour, which Man. is going to be a huge tour. Talk about the revival of glam rock. Oh, I mean, like that's those are like three of the biggest names right there. Man. That'll be an incredible show. Yeah, but it's just amazing because it's like whenever you make such a big deal about like we're signing a contract that says we can never tour again, I in the back of my mind always thought the only reason you do that is so that way you can make this big comeback later. Right. And so I'm I'm surprised by it, but I'm not surprised by it. I kind of always thought that it was too good to be true. They They retired really young compared to other bands. Like, these guys are not as old as some of these 70s and 60s bands that just continue to tour. And so a lot of people were really suspicious when they called it quits relatively early. I mean, obviously, these guys are still older, but they definitely um, could have gone on for another 10 years if they wanted to. And it looks like they're going to. Exactly. And the way they announced their comeback was they blew up that contract, just just exploded like it. Like literally blew yeah. it up. Yeah, <laughs> uh-huh. So whether or not this was real, if this ever was a true legal document, I'm not quite sure. But the main gist of it is Motley Crue's back and they're going to make a lot of money. And kind of talking about reunions, it's been a crazy three-week span because not only them, but we've also had... My Chemical Romance, mm-hmm. Rage Against the Machine, mm-hmm. and The Black Crows. Yep. That was one that a lot of people said would never happen. And it's not a full reunion. It's not all the original members. But enough to where you could pass it off as it. So it seems like then the year 2020 is going to be the year of the comeback. Oh, yeah. This is going to be a really interesting to see how these tours shape up and... Um, in the midst of all of these farewells, we have these comebacks, which I think is really cool. It's, you know, we've got these bands that said that they were done. And in the midst of all these other bands saying they're done, we're now having these bands come back, which is really cool. Well, there you have it. That's what's happening this week in the world of music. But let's get into the band that we are talking about this week. And Lucas, that band is? Judas Priest. Judas Priest. And it goes without saying, we've made this joke many, many times on this podcast. 
but another British band. Yes. Um, all of the early heavy metal came from Britain. We didn't get any um, homegrown heavy metal until Metallica came along in Very 1983. So, you know, all of the bands, Black Sabbath, which mm-hmm. includes Ozzy Osbourne, Judas Priest, Motorhead, Iron Maiden, you know, the the whole new wave of British heavy metal scene. I mean, British. The Nawabum. The Nawabum. I mean, they all came from that. Def Leppard is British. Um, and they were part of that original movement as well. And yeah, so I mean, they were really leading the charge for a long time. It wasn't until kind of hair metal and thrash metal came in the early 80s that we started finally getting some heavy metal on our side of the ocean. So who is Judas Priest? That's a really loaded question because they've gone through a lot of lineup changes, um, particularly with their drummers. So have you ever seen the movie This is Spinal Tap? Yes. So you know how they have the running joke about how they can never hold on to a drummer? Yeah. That's Judas Priest. (laughs) Although recently the drum position has become stable. They've had the same drummer for about almost 30 years now. So it's the longest time they've ever had a drummer. But in those beginning years, like every album had a different drummer. Well, hang on. 30 years is also a very long time. That's more than our age right there. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the band is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. That's amazing. And this is their second time being nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's why I picked them to do this week. You can be nominated more than once? Yes. You, I mean, oh, like I if, guess if you've never made it in, yeah, that would make sense. Got it. Yeah, that that would stink if you got nominated once, and if you didn't get in, well, you can never be nominated <laughs> again. Wow, they haven't made it into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Nope. Two years ago, That's crazy. either two years or three years ago, was the first time they'd ever even been nominated. Man, that and is a travesty. They've been eligible for twenty five years now. It's really a shame. But anyway, the members of Judas Priest is first off, you got to talk about Rob Halford yes, as the lead vocalist, the, um, the shrieking metal god himself. Um, he's been a constant presence throughout the band, although there was a time in the 90s that he was not with the band. Um, we've had Ian Hill on bass. He's actually the, um, the longest tenured member of the band. He's the only one that has appeared on every single Judas Priest album. And he's like probably the least well-known person in the band. And then we have two lead guitar players in Judas Priest. Um, We have K.K. Downing and Glenn Tipton, which is one of the greatest guitar duos of all time. And then we've got a long list of drummers. We've got um, original drummer John Hinch, who then was replaced by Alan Moore, who then was replaced by Les Binks who was then replaced by Dave Holland, and then we have our current drummer, which is uh, Scott Travis. Now, here's a question for you. If Judas Priest were to get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, what lineup do you think would be the ones? Well, the good thing with Judas Priest is that since they've had a lot of key members, they're not inducting one lineup per se. Like, I know for sure that both Dave Holland and... Scott Travis are both getting in as drummers for Judas Priest. Um, their current guitar players are not going to get in. And then they their singer in the 90s is not going to get in. But as far as the early drummers, I actually would need to look that up on which drummers w- 
got nominated. So those are the members of the band, but they're not all the original members, though. No. So actually, none of the original members of Judas Priest ever made a Judas Priest album. Wow. Which is a really uncommon thing. Usually you at least have like one person that was there in the original incarnation that made it to the first album or two at least. Yeah. But in this instance, like the first incarnation of Judas Priest, like all went their separate ways before the band even made their first album. Crazy. And so the main person that is credited with keeping Judas Priest alive is their original singer, Al Atkins. He created the first incarnation of the band. He even gave the band their name. But when it came time to record their first album, they just splintered apart. And so he joined a band called Freight. And that's where he met bassist Ian Hill and guitarist K.K. Downing. And whenever he joined the band, he decided to call them Judas Priest. And so then that became the first incarnation of Judas Priest to have any of the classic members in them. And so along the way, they got um, John Hinch to play the drums. And then uh, Al Atkins actually decided that he didn't want to be in the band anymore. And so Ian Hill's girlfriend said, hey, I've got a brother that's a really good singer. (laughs) Okay. And that was Rob Halford. Wow. That ended up being a very fortuitous relationship that they had there. And so those four were the ones that got their first record deal with a very obscure record label called Gull. And it was Gull's idea to get a second guitar player. And that's when they found Glenn Tipton. Mm. And so that was the now established first lineup of the band. So with all the members ready to go, they were ready to make that first album. But it didn't quite make the impression that they were wanting to. Rockerola was a very lackluster debut record. Well, I mean, think about that name. That name's terrible. <laughs> yes. It's meant to be a, a play on Coca-Cola. Okay. Rockerola. Oh, yeah. This this is not a good album. It's not even a metal album. This is It's like a weird blues psychedelic record. And it... Barely sold a thousand copies. Wow. Let's say you and me and a thousand people bought our album. I guess we would think that's pretty cool. But when that's your livelihood and you're trying to make it big and only a thousand people buy your first album, that's got to be pretty depressing. And it's so bad enough that Hinch leaves. Yeah. He was just like, eh, no, this ain't going to work. And so um, that's when they get Alan Moore into the band. And I feel like that was a good step for them because then they released that second album. And this is kind of like where Judas Priest's musical journey really begins. Like a lot of people even just ignore the first album and they consider Sad Wings of Destiny to be like the true start of not just Judas Priest, but of like the second wave of heavy metal in general. So what was the big thing about this second album? This second album, the songwriting was just really good. It was the first one to really kind of delve into the metal territory And also at this point, even metal itself was not really a thing yet. There was only one metal band at the time, and that was Black Sabbath. And so one band can't create a whole genre or can't be its own genre. And so when Judas Priest made this album, it was kind of like signaling, okay, Black Sabbath isn't just its own thing. There's now other bands coming in to um, further this dark sound. Like it's a very dark record. It's the songs are about serial killers and genocide and 
these evil rulers and it's just it's this really really dense dark record it's not doesn't have any pop singles on them and it's also the album where the guitars really lock in like you really get the benefit of having a dual lead guitar attack on sad wings of destiny and also halford just really rips vocally on this album but this album still flops yes but this album has become one of the most revered albums in heavy metal history, and it's just been looked at in a very favorable light as the years have gone by. But because the album flopped, they didn't make any money off of it, and they realized that being with Goal was just not going to get them anywhere. They were cutting their budgets, and they said that they were literally eating beans on toast every day <laughs> because they had no money. And they were just like, we got to do something. And luckily, they got an offer from CBS Records. And they were finally able to make an album on a major label, which for a lot of bands, that's kind of like the moment when you're like, okay, we're actually going to make it. We're not an underground band anymore. Like, think, Metallica, their major label debut was Master of Puppets. And that was the album that made them leaders of the underground metal scene. So... Being on a major label is a huge step, and so they make sin after sin, but another drummer leaves. Of course. And they actually have an interesting situation here where instead of getting a drummer, they just hire a session drummer, and that session drummer is Simon Phillips, who, if you don't know who he is, he's not a metal drummer at all. He's, like, played on tons of, like, pop and jazz tunes, like, he's... He's one of those people that's just known for being like a just a virtuoso session player. Like he played with Toto and like all of these bands that you wouldn't even associate with Judas Priest. Interesting. But it's also got some of the best drumming that they've ever had. Like he's the one that introduces the double bass into their sound and really pushes them artistically. Sin After Sin is a great record and it's a really big stepping stone for them. They really start to um, – really advance their songwriting in this album. And then Les Binks joins. Yes. So they offered Simon Phillips to be in the band. He said, "Mm, that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'll just stick to... Not surprising. Yeah. He did not want to uh, be a metalhead for the rest of his life. So that's when they got Les Binks. And Les Binks is one of the best drummers they ever had. He only lasted for two albums, but he was able to kind of further what Simon Phillips was already doing, but kind of metalize it a little more. He continued the double bass. He even contributed a lot songwriting. And they released that fourth album, Stained Class. And that was kind of the moment they finally, uh, I wouldn't say they broke big, but they, they started to finally be able to support themselves. And they were really now in the underground scene. Yes. So by the time Stained Class came out, this was the point where they were like the next up-and-coming metal band. And they were kind of leading the metal um, revolution at that time. By about this time is when Motorhead joins the scene. And we kind of start to see some momentum picking up in the metal underground. Because at this point now, Black Sabbath star is falling. Yeah. Uh, the drugs and everything is just completely wiping them out and they're not making great records anymore. And so someone needed to fill that void and Stained Class kind of showed that Judas Priest was going to be that band. This is a very heavy album and in my opinion, it's the best album of that early period before they start changing their sound. Like it's 
It's really aggressive. It's really dark. It's got tons of great riffs. It's kind of the first true metal album of their career because the first three albums had a lot of metal elements to them, but they also had a lot of blues, a lot of um, a lot of psychedelic, a lot of kind of straightforward rock um, aspects to it. But Stained Class is a metal album from start to finish. And so then next comes Hellbent for Leather. Yes, this is the big change for them. So this is when they start to veer more towards a commercial sound. Oh. They start um, in toning down the intensity. They start writing shorter songs. They start writing songs that can get on the radio. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of when we really start to develop the the iconic Judas Priest sound that most people would associate them with. And... It also starts their iconic look. Yeah, so that album name was not just an album name. It was also a statement of um, their persona. So Rob Halford, talk a little bit about him. He was the first openly gay metal musician, although he wouldn't come out until about the 90s. But he said he had been gay his whole life. And it was his idea to dress everyone up in leather, which when you look back on it now... It's just like it's very obvious. Right. But he said that like he was even really trying to make it, you know, stand out to it. just like, hey, guys, I'm wearing tons of leather. I look like I'm with the village people. And <laughs> he said that people just weren't getting it. Yeah. <laughs> that they just weren't connecting the dots. But, you know, the spikes and the studs and like this became the look of metal. Like you look at all of the hair metal bands. Yeah. And the like when you think of what a heavy metal artist looks like, what do you think of? That. That. Judas Priest started that. So like the entire fashion and the look of heavy metal you can thank Judas Priest for. And specifically Rob Halford. And he's even had this whip that he would take with him on stage. And they used to hand out little buttons that said, I got whipped by Halford. Because <laughs> he would just, like, whip people that were at the front of the stage. Oh, my gosh. And, like, um, whenever they would play the Hellbent for Leather song live, he would always start the song riding a motorcycle out onto the stage. Amazing. So, I mean, it was just like they cultivated this this look and this attitude of just these these biker rebel metal maniacs. So it was when you combine that very obvious, showy, theatrical look with these more accessible songs, yeah, that's going to start resulting in um, a lot more recognition and a lot more notoriety. And they released also their first live album this time, Unleashed in the East, which um, created an unfortunate controversy with Les Binks. And why is that? Their manager decided not to pay him for playing on that live album. Oh. And so he quit. And that's what brings in Dave Holland. Dave Holland. So up to that point, he becomes Judas Priest's longest tenured drummer. He stays on for about 10 years from 79 to 89. And once he's in the band, that's kind of like when we have the classic lineup. So that's Rob Halford, K.K. Downing, Glenn Tipton, Ian Hill, and Dave Holland. And this is the group that makes Judas Priest's biggest records, starting with British Steel. British Steel is one of the most iconic and successful metal records ever made. This was the point where they were getting on the radio, that they were selling out shows, they were making music videos. Um, MTV was just around the corner at this point. 
was something that they would take very full advantage of. This is an album that has songs like Breaking the Law and Living After Midnight and Metal Gods and like these huge recognizable songs of theirs. And they taste fame. They become huge. They become the band that is now, they now have the clear answer on who's going to replace Black Sabbath. So now at this point, 1980, Black Sabbath's done. Yeah. They've broken up. Well, at least they fired Ozzy Osbourne. And kind of, you know, they were not being counted as the leaders anymore. And when British Steel did so well, everyone saw, okay, well, now Judas Priest is, they are the leaders. We're going to follow them. We're going to do what they do. And had that not happened, we might not have gotten Iron Maiden. We might not have gotten Metallica. I mean, this was a huge, important moment in heavy metal history. But then just like so many other bands in history, the moment they hit their high, they start to slide. Yeah, so the next album, Point of Entry, um, really marked a low point for the band as they saw the success of British Steel, specifically of the radio-friendly singles that came off of it, and thought to themselves, let's just make an album full of those songs. That was a bad idea. Their fans were furious at them. They said that they were selling out, that they only cared about the money. Which, of course, in the metal world is like the worst thing that you can do. Yes. I mean, at this point, they didn't know yet. It was kind of like the metal scene was still figuring out what it was. But definitely after that point, they very soon corrected that mistake. And they released what a lot of people might say was the greatest album of their career, which is Screaming for Vengeance. (laughs) Like, it was literally... Like, a lot of people just even forget that point of entry existed because they went from the incredible British Steel to the incredible Screaming for Vengeance. Mm. Like, immediately, they were right back on top. Um, That album ended up becoming the biggest of their entire career. And this was the album that got me hooked on Judas Priest. Like, this is an incredible record. And really... It's the heaviest record they had made up to that point since Stained Class. Like, Hellbent for Leather, British Steel, and Point of Entry had kind of lost all of the intense Halford screams and the really heavy guitar riffs. Screaming for Vengeance brought that back while still kind of remaining fairly accessible. And in my opinion, this is when Rob Halford's voice really started to hit its peak, where he was just singing at his absolute best. And then they keep the momentum strong with the next album, Defenders of the Faith. My personal favorite Judas Priest record. This is kind of continuing in the trajectory that Screaming for Vengeance is going of kind of returning to really hard, really aggressive, really dark songs while still keeping a pulse on what was being accessible at that time. So now they're like in the full throes of hair metal. Like metal is very in style at this point and Judas Priest is kind of able to stay within that scene while still appeasing all of the hardcore fans. But just like so many of those other bands during that time period, they also start to slide by the same things, don't they? Yeah, all the vices that took all of those rock and roll players out, you know, drugs, alcohol, sex, it just, specifically Rob Halford, he just got, he almost died. He overdosed on cocaine and just realized that his life was out of control. And he had to leave Judas Priest for a very brief amount of time to get go to rehab. Like, while they were in the midst of this 
huge success with Defenders of the Faith. He had to just completely step away to try and take care of himself. And when he came back, the band really was not the same. And that's something that we're going to look at more when we come back to Judas Priest in a further episode. So there you have it, at least up until this point, that's Judas Priest in a nutshell. But before we move on, Lucas, what are some really big characteristics and influences that people need to know about Judas Priest? The twin guitars. I mean, this was one of the most important evolutions in not just rock and metal, but music history. It was common for bands to have two guitar players, but you always had one that was the lead and one that was the rhythm. Right. This was one of the first bands and definitely the first that made it popular to have two lead guitar players where they're playing the riffs in unison with each other. They're doing these harmonizing lines and then you would have these trade-off guitar solos where they're almost like battling with each other. And it just gave so much more power and aggression and just filled up a lot of space. And they were the first true metal band. Yes, they were. So... Even though Black Sabbath is considered the creators of metal, until probably the 80s or 90s, they never considered themselves a metal band. And they always kind of denounced that title whenever people would give it to them. Um, They always kind of saw themselves as like a, a hard blues band. Judas Priest were the first ones to kind of proudly wear the label of metal band. Like, they f- they carried the flag of metal high and proud. They were the ones that would say, yes, we are heavy metal, and we're very proud of it. So that was a very important thing for them as well. They're kind of like the first, you know, the first pure metal band that, like, knew what they were, and they were not afraid to be called so. And... Being the first true metal band meant that they brought a lot of the characteristics that we now have in metal. Like, again, to compare with Black Sabbath, if you listen to Black Sabbath, they were very slow. Their music was full of doom and kind of just very low crunching riffs, where Judas Priest brought, like, the speed and the energy to heavy metal. That wasn't existent until they came along. So... Like, everyone, when they think of heavy metal, they think of, like, really fast playing. And that's what Judas Priest brought to the band. And they really brought this appeal to a commercial audience for the first time. Yes. Um, Even though Black Sabbath did have some commercial success in the early 70s, as far as, like, being on the radio and having widely viewed music videos, they were kind of the first ones to really break through past the the intense metal scene into something that even the normal person would have heard of them or have heard their songs. Also, Rob Halford, we got to talk about his importance. I mean, this man is one of the most important and influential figures in all of heavy metal. His singing style became like the blueprint for so many bands going forward. He was the one that brought that operatic, very piercing sound to heavy metal singing, something that would be very much important to Iron Maiden style and to tons of different subgenres going down the road. But he also had like this grit and this intensity to the way he would scream. He wasn't like just some classically trained singer hitting these high notes. There was just a ferociousness. He brought this angst and this anger And that was something that Black Sabbath also hadn't brought down before. Ozzy Osbourne has a very particular way that he sings. That's not for everybody. 
Judas Priest and Rob Halford brought kind of that first true metal sound as far as the vocals are concerned. And then it can't be understated how um, important Rob Halford was as far as being an openly gay metal musician. He was kind of the first one to do so, and that ended up being a very, very big deal to the metal community. And there you have it. That is Judas Priest in a nutshell. We're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we are going to talk about the six songs that we picked to represent Judas Priest. Stay tuned. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. Today we are talking about Judas Priest, and we have six songs that represent the band, but first, before we get into that, Lucas, why do we have these songs? What I'm doing with these songs is I like to pick a set of songs that accomplish a couple of things. First, I like for these songs to be a good representation of the band if you've never listened to them before. So if you've, for instance, never listened to Judas Priest before, these six songs are going to give you a pretty good idea of what this band is about while also at the same time creating an interesting emotional flow from start to finish where the songs transition well between each other and give you an emotional satisfying feeling towards the end so that you have a catharsis. And so I'm not necessarily picking the six best Judas Priest songs. I'm not picking my six favorite Judas Priest songs. These are simply the songs that A, will introduce you and hook you onto the band as well as provide an interesting emotional experience from start to finish. And so without further ado, that gets us into our first and I guess second song really on this list, The Hellion and Electric Eye. Yes, I'm actually kind of like combining these songs into one because that's how you're supposed to listen to them. Like you can't listen to Electric Eye without hearing the majestic opening of The Hellion. For sure. I mean, what an epic intro to an album this is the song or the the duo of songs that open up screaming for vengeance and honestly this is what i this was the very first thing i ever heard of judas priest i hit play on this album i heard that intro and heard electric eye and i was just like i'm sold i'm ready i'm gonna i'm gonna be a fan of judas priest from now on now this song kind of has a classic rock style that i was really not expecting to come from Judas Priest. Yeah, so Judas Priest, they definitely, this is the era where they were simplifying their style and making it more accessible. Although, I would say that this song has a bit more bite than some of the other songs that had come right before it, especially on the stuff from Point of Entry, as we For talked sure. about earlier. And, like, th- to me, this is classic Priest. Like, Judas Priest writes riffs that instantly sound like a Judas Priest riff. I would say more so than any other band, whenever I hear some other band's song and they'll play a riff, I'll think to myself, that is a Judas Priest-sounding riff. I don't know what it is about them, but just the way that they're chugging on them, the palm muting, the um, syncopation that they use, I can always tell a great Judas Priest riff. And... This song is just full of them. But yeah, it is a very simple song. There's not a lot of 
sudden changes. Um, the singing is not incredibly intense on this song. He kind of uses a little more of his lower register, but I think it works really well. Speaking of the vocals, there are a lot of very interesting vocal parts throughout the song, just with different effects on it. Yes, I love all the effects on this. It kind of gives it this this spacey, otherworldly feel, which is what the song's about. It's about a satellite in the in the sky that's watching your every move. It's a very 1984 Big Brother of course. themed song. And so, yeah, especially when you get into that chorus and you hear all the distortion on the vocals, I think that it really lends to the lyrical content well. And then we have this very metal-like ending at the end of this song. Yes. Um, you've got the, um, the very intense punches and you've got a really great fade out. I love how it just really takes its time. You're kind of like, okay, what's going to come next as it slowly fades out. And that, of course, leads us into our next song, Metal Gods. Metal Gods. Ooh, this is a contender for my favorite Judas Priest song. I just think when it hits right in that beginning, it just creates this great transition from this long fade out into just this booming uh, marching beat. And this song is just so interesting. It's got so many little details just sprinkled throughout it. I think the thing that I like about this song specifically is... I kind of really like how less polished it sounds. Mm-hmm. Like it sounds so raw. Like they're almost like playing like in a garage or something. Yes, they're actually playing in Ringo Starr's mansion. Wow. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. A very intentional decision was made to, um, especially after their live album, Unleash in the East, became their first platinum record. Um, They wanted to have an album that really captured that raw sound to kind of make it sound like the band was playing live. And so they really accomplished that well on this album. Um, Everything is just really big, very – there's a lot of space in the mix. Yeah. And just everything – like the guitars, they just fill up all of that space. Speaking of the guitars, I love that guitar line that copies the vocal melody in the chorus. Yes, uh. that's one of my favorite parts. It's just so epic, and you just you hear that bow, wow, wow, wow. We've talked about this before in a lot of other bands, but I always love it when a band can have their guitars like almost make it sound like there's another vocal on the track. Yes, and it's always so fun to hear a track like this where. You're almost having like this callback with a guitar line. Mm-hmm. And that's really the benefit of having two guitar players because they can just make it sound so full. Even like whether they're playing in unison with each other or playing harmony, it's just when you add that second guitar, it just gives it this whole new dimension, especially if you've got two guitar players that are locked in with each other. And K.K. Downing and Glenn Tipton were about as locked in as two guitar players could be. So one of the things that I have noticed about specifically about this song, but a lot of these other songs, is that we're in in the seventies, and this song specifically has a very ACDC like feel to it. Yes. Yeah, so ACDC had just come out with Back in Black at this point, and were just you know had just become the biggest band in the world. And you can definitely feel that influence, like rock returning to its roots and just being very simple, not overly complicated. And um, I feel like Judas Priest was really smart in how they adapted, at least on this album, not on point of entry as they would do afterward. This album is just such a great balance. And I feel like this song is such a 
uh, a good representation of that because it's got this really great ferocity from Rob Halford's vocals. Like he's got a ton of grit except for when he sings the chorus. Yeah. And the lyrical content is just like so metal. Like it's about metal gods and about these machines that take over the world and enslave humanity. Like the part when they say better be the slaves and you hear this whip crack. <laughs> it's like it's got enough cheese to where you're not like scared by it. But at the same time, it's just like, yeah, this is metal. And then instrumentally, it's got this very accessible rock feel that was very in tune with what was happening in oh, the yeah. culture at the time. Yeah. I... I've always thought that this song is really underrated. This is my favorite song off of the British Steel album. And, you know, songs like Breaking the Law and Living After Midnight have gotten so much more of the attention. But I think that this is the real gem on the album. And it's just the one that every time it comes on, I just have so much fun listening to it. It's just kind of like I get like this primal sense that kind of takes over me and I just kind of just I have to start headbanging. I got to pump my fist in the air when I sing Metal Gods and the part at the end where you've got the robots marching and you've got that sound effect that's what they're using is like yeah. silverware that they're just banging on the kitchen counter and it's just like it's just epic and it just feels good and powerful. Speaking of breaking the law, that gets us into our next song. Which is Breaking the Law. Yes. Yeah, so this was the song that really put Judas Priest on the map. Um, they were growing in popularity up to this point, but this was the first single released off of British Steel. And this is the one that really um, got them popular in outside of the metal community. And it's really easy to see why. Yeah. That instrumental breakdown is so iconic. And I for a long time was trying to figure out where I had heard it because I feel like it's, and maybe it's just because it's influenced a lot of other different songs, but I feel like it's become such a mainstream like riff. Yeah. Like you hear this all over rock and roll radio, like rock radio is not going to play too many Judas Priest songs, but this is absolutely one of the ones they're going to play. Um, that line is just so iconic. I love the pace of this song, and I really love how like how that bass is just kind of running along the whole way. Yeah, I'm not enough people talk about Ian Hill. I mean, like I said earlier, no one's been in the band longer than Ian Hill has, and he's the one person that a lot of people don't know what his name is. And I think that that's a real shame because he is such an important member of the band. So not too long ago... We were at a uh, a friend of mine's wedding, and I took my son with me. And he got to the point to where he couldn't really stay in the um, in the wedding hall where they were having the reception, and there was like a little grassy area where he could play. When he went out there, he got a stick in each hand, and he was running around doing dance moves and singing "Breaking the Law" <laughs> at the top of his lungs. Amazing. And it's one of the proudest moments I've ever had as a father. <laughs> and of course, breaking the law, breaking the law. Yeah. And of course, all the other parents were looking at me. It's just like, is he singing Breaking the Law? And I was just like, heck yeah, he is. <laughs> that gets us into our next song, The Sentinel. Yes. Another contender for maybe my favorite Judas Priest song. 
Ooh, man, this this is a powerful song. I think the biggest thing that stands out is just Rob Halford's vocal performance in this song. Yes, so like I said, when we got to Screaming for Vengeance and Defenders of the Faith, he really started to return to that metal sound in his voice because he really tones it down in Hellbent for Leather, British Steel, and Point of Entry. He kind of uses a bit more of the mid-range of his voice, but Screaming for Vengeance, and especially on Defenders of the Faith, and especially on The Sentinel, he just goes all out vocally. This is such a fun song to listen to him sing on. I love that first breakdown instrumental right before the guitar solo, and then the guitar solo right after that. They're just nuts. (laughs) Yeah. And this is a great song. And I remember for the first time, I had always heard about this song, like people saying this is one of the best Judas Priest songs ever. And I um, bought the album Defenders of the Faith and I was listening to it for the first time. And I remember the Sentinel came on. I was listening. I was just like, okay, yeah, this is a good song. I don't see what they're meaning by this is one of the best songs ever. But then after that guitar solo, and it goes into that like synthy breakdown part, and they he starts doing that part with the low register of his voice. Mm-hmm. That was when I was just like, "Oh, okay, yes, I understand now." That whole transition and that section where they're slowly building it up back into that last chorus and like the lyrics of that whole section. That's just like, oh, that's one of my favorite Judas Priest moments of all time. Yeah, I love how the instrumental resets, like, the entire song. Mm -hmm. And then, really, like, as they're rising higher and higher, I love how Halford's vocals get go up the same way. Like, they just get shriekier and shriekier and just, like, lighter and lighter, just as the entire, like, tension of the song is rising again. Yes, and then that last chorus, man, he just lets it go just screaming at the very top of what he can do, and it just sounds so good. And that gets us into our next song, Victim of Changes. Yeah, so uh, the prolonged um, fade-out from the Sentinel, I felt matched really good with the prolonged fade-in for Victim of Changes. This is one of Judas Priest's most famous, iconic songs ever. And this is the song that starts off Sad Wings of Destiny, so for a lot of people... This song is the beginning of Judas Priest right here. Um, This is where their story begins. And I think this is one of the best songs they've ever made. It's got a bit more of a slowed down, just heavy groove to it. But it's got so much ferocity to it. And Rob Halford is just on point on this song. I know we just talked about his screams in the last song, The Sentinel. But on this song, I mean, I feel like it's even more prominent. Yes, he doesn't have the bite or the snarl in his voice yet, and so it's very clean falsetto, but he still just, he hits these notes that I'm just like, good lord. It's just so good. And I love that hit section right before the instrumental breakdown with that crazy wah guitar work. Yes, yes. Um, uh, You been fooling. And then it transitions into like these really interesting guitar chugs like that are... Like they're so subtle mm-hmm. during the breakdown, and then you. Just, but it's just like this nice little movement that like keeps the energy of the song going. Yeah. So this was originally two different songs that they kind of put together. So you've got the first half, which was originally called "Whiskey Woman," which was written by their original lead singer Al Atkins, 
And then you had um, a song called Red Light Woman that Rob Halford had written before he came to Judas Priest. And that was like the breakdown section, though. Well, she was wonderful. Oh, that would make sense. And so it was kind of they, they stitched the two songs together and figured out how to connect them lyrically. Yeah, that would explain why there's just such a different change in tone with those guitar slides mm-hmm. halfway through. I mean, they recorded it all at the same, but it was two different styles of writing mm-hmm. that kind of came together. But then, of course, you get to the end of the breakdown section and it comes right back into uh, that into that opening riff. That ending guitar section is so great. Mm-hmm. And then you got to talk about those screams at the yes. end of the song. I mean, what a great way to finish out this song. Oh, yeah. Like just having that scream just lingering with nothing else around it. I mean, just again, this is metal being born right here. This is something that had not ever been done before and would just become such a staple of the genre of just these um, these intense moments. And you, I just look at Victim of Changes as just this important stepping stone in the story of how metal has changed and evolved. This was one of the crucial steps. And that gets us into our last song, Beyond the Realms of Death. Yes, so I had to include at least one song from Stained Class since it's such a um, revered album in metal. And this is one of Judas Priest's most beloved songs. They play it at pretty much every single live show. This was the first time they haven't played it live on a tour since they released the album in 1978. So this song has a really interesting juxtaposition with the acoustic guitar in the verses and then this really heavy rock-sounding chorus. Yeah, so if you look back at our Metallica episode, which if you haven't listened to our Metallica episode, please go check it out. Um, But the formula that Metallica used comes straight from Beyond the Realms of Death. Like, metal had never written a ballad like this before. Mm. And this became like the gold standard of metal ballads where, you know, it's still dark. It's not like a love song or a, oh, I'm sad song. Like it's, you know, it's it's about suicide and um, about trying to get through to a person that is completely checked out of this world. You've got the darkness and the anger and the despair in there. Um, But yeah, having the clean verses and heavy choruses that just that became – the blueprint for writing a metal ballad. And I really love this first guitar solo because I feel like there's so much emotion in it. Yes, this is cited by most to be um, maybe Judas Priest's best guitar solo ever. And that solo was played by Glenn Tipton. And K.K. Downing played the one that was at the very end of the song. Uh, I love the change of pace, of course, which now when I really think about it in some of the other metal bands that we've covered, this is like a very common play when it comes to like a metal ballad like ending with this change of pace Mm -hmm. but again at the time they were this was a brand new thing so it's like they were really setting the bar on what other bands would eventually do also a really cool thing about this song is that their drummer at the time les binks wrote everything about this song except for the lyrics and the solos but he wrote all the acoustic guitar parts. He wrote the chorus riff. He came up with the melodies. That's pretty cool. That's so unfortunate the way his time with the band ended because it seems like he really contributed a lot 
Dave Holland was a great drummer, but I would have been really interested to see what Les Binks would have done with the British Steel point of entry Screaming for Vengeance material that they had. I think that that could have been a really cool what if. Well, there you have it. Those are the six songs that we've picked to represent Judas Priest. We're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we are going to talk about the bonus song and give our final thoughts. Stay tuned. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. As always, we've got a bonus song for you that goes along with the songs that we've picked. Now, if this is your first time listening with us, Lucas, can you explain what is a bonus song? So this is the song that I pick to represent a more unestablished or well-known band. My opportunity to spotlight more unknown songs or maybe bands that were one-hit wonders or bands that were big in the underground but never made it big. So I like to use this time to be able to showcase those songs. And I always like for there to be some kind of connection between the bonus song and the featured artist, whether that be genre or time period or something to do with the history of the band. So this is my chance to be able to give due to some of these songs that perhaps would not make it onto the main part of an episode. So that being said then, Lucas, what is the bonus song for us this week? This bonus song is Heavy Metal Maniac by Excitar. Now this song is quite the drastic change from our list. Yes, but not, I guess, from the list, but not from our artist. Um, When I picked the Judas Priest songs, I actually intentionally picked more of their um, restrained songs and not picking some of their more intense songs. What we hear here on this bonus song with Heavy Metal Maniac is a bit more of an accurate representation of what Judas Priest is like. So a little bit of why I picked this particular song. So the band Exciter actually takes its name from a Judas Priest song, Exciter, which is the first track on their album Stained Class. And even their sound comes from that song. If you listen to the song Exciter, it is a double bass filled, just like pulse pounding race of a song. Like it's an exciting song. It's got a double bass groove. It's really fast. It's got a lot of high piercing vocals and chugging riffs. And that's exactly what Exciter as a band sounds like. Uh, I would have guess that because this song when i listen to it is i mean this is like almost a prototypical metal song for me like this is what i would have thought of listening through metal yeah so the subgenre that this fits in is what's called speed metal which is actually kind of a very short-lived a bit more obscure metal subgenre it's not like thrash metal or power metal or doom metal that kind of had this very vibrant scene come out of it rather it lasted for a very short time in the 80s and exciter were kind of like the main bands of that movement and what separates speed metal like say from thrash metal is you've got a lot of the traditional metal elements in it they borrow really i would say mostly from judas priest as far as you've got a bit of a heavier sound but you still got like 
the high piercing vocals. Yeah. The guitars are not necessarily like tight like thrash metal is, but a bit more um, loose and yeah. everything sounds a bit more full and yeah. reverby. And speed metal really sings about either chicks or about metal itself. <laughs> speed metal is just really like – it's like good drinking music like you're just you know you're on your motorcycle you're going from bar to bar and it's like that's what you would listen to so it's very short and sweet yes um you know it's very fast it's got a lot of intricate playing but again it's not like thrash thrash took itself a lot more seriously and just had a bit more of a progressive bent to it and it was a little faster as well so when you're saying thrash took itself a little bit more seriously are you saying that then speed metal is just kind of like this flash in the pan thing like there's not really much like emotion or substance to it um yeah like if there was emotion in it it would just be like heck yeah motion just kind of you know it's it's meant to just like have a good time to it's not meant to like scare you or make you really think about things it's kind of just more about you know it's just kind of like your very typical metal just a bit faster again speed metal but with the band that we've been talking about, Judas Priest, they had so much more to them. Yes, they did. And that's why they don't really get lumped in with the speed metal scene, even though they did help inspire it for sure. Like Exciter, the song, that's like the blueprint upon which all speed metal exists. And even Thrash picked up a lot from this song as well. And I guess if you were to look into Judas Priest's career once they hit the 90s, they kind of become a speed metal band. Because that's kind of what they turn into is this fast, heavy, double bass, like, shrieking band. And so now that I think about it, Judas Priest is a speed metal band, just not during the time period that we're talking about in this episode. Speaking of which, Lucas, I was going to tell you, I actually really enjoyed listening to this list this week. I'm very glad that you did. I had a feeling you would, because again, I'm not really throwing you into the deep end like I did with Slayer with Slipknot. I was very surprised at how accessible these songs were because I think I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, but all of these songs really remind me of a classic 70s rock sound, which, of course, I love. Like, so much either influence or even just similarities to ACDC all across the board. Yeah, I mean, they they were definitely with them as far as kind of, you know, creating that scene. And it's really telling that they were around during the punk movement. And I think that they borrowed a lot from them. And yes. I think that that really helped to um, inform them of their sound and their style. Yeah, it's really easy to see now that, you know, after everything that we've talked about and everything that we've listened to, it's really easy to see why they made it so big commercially because their songs, like, especially, and I know this list doesn't encompass a lot of their heavier stuff, but I could see, like, just your average listener, especially on the radio, like, these songs would be hits, and they were hits. Yes, they absolutely were. And it's a an essential chapter, not just in Judas Priest history, but in metal history in general. Like, had Judas Priest not hit it big, I don't know where metal would have gone at that point because they were the flag bearers. 
they were the ones leading the charge at that point in time. And them leading the charge inspired so many bands to come up after them. Like, Iron Maiden was the next logical step after Judas Priest. Like, if Judas Priest hadn't come around, we wouldn't have gotten an Iron Maiden. And I also don't think that we would have gotten a lot of what Thrash was doing, even though I think that Thrash borrowed a little more from, say, Punk and from Motorhead in particular, which we'll do an episode on them at some point. I think that you miss such a large part of the metal culture without Judas Priest. And I think that they're just so, so, so important. I was going to say, I really, having listened to all the bands that we've listened to so far, it was really interesting to me listening to Judas Priest to see the evolution of metal Mm -hmm. to like where it was with this really, and it's funny because I look on it now and with the little that I know, like I, a lot of this stuff that we've listened to, I would have never considered it to be metal. And then seeing like where it is now, like where metal is now. And it's Uh just like, oh man, like that's really interesting. Like how metal music, like you said, kind of derived originally from this harder bluesy stuff. Mm -hmm. And then into this really kind of classic rock sounding and then all of a sudden has just progressively gotten faster, more aggressive. And it's just really interesting to see how all that has kind of come to a head. Yeah, it's with metal in particular, it's so important to know who brought what to the pot. It's kind of like you look at the other bands at the time, like you see what Black Sabbath brought to metal, which was the occult-influenced lyrics and the the horror aspect of it. Judas Priest bringing the look and the speed and the technicality. And you've got like Motorhead that's bringing the aggression and the crunch to heavy metal. And it's kind of like you you start to see how everything starts to splinter off and how everything just progresses. I To me, it's so, so interesting. As far as the, the areas of music that I love to research the most, I would say it's heavy metal because it's just so endlessly fascinating on how all the subgenres came to be. And I think it really speaks a lot, too, about just how much of a living, breathing organism music is, Mm -hmm. like how it can go off into so many different things and people find so many different ways to just, like, take it to the next step further. That's a very great way of looking at it. Well, there you have it. That is Judas Priest in our episode in a nutshell. Lucas, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, I've loved Judas Priest. I've always loved Judas Priest. Again, as I found with researching all of these bands, I've grown a deeper appreciation for them. I listen to a lot of their stuff I've never listened to before, and I'm really glad that I did. And I just really, really hope they get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. If not this year, then very, very soon. Well, there you have it, everybody. That is our episode. Please make sure to check out the Spotify playlist. There's going to be a link in the description below. Also, we have a Facebook page where you can get in on the discussion of all things that we are talking about. We'd love to interact with you and see what you guys think about the music, what songs are on the list, what songs didn't make the list. And if you've liked listening to us, we've got a brand new episode every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. I'm Lucas. And I'm Justin. Keep on listening to good music.